0: So if you're visiting with us today or if uh, you're here but you don't pay attention, uh, we've been going through Advent the past few weeks. Um, After all that, who knows what's going to happen today, okay? Some of you are really excited and some of you are really nervous. And I'm just a little bit of both, perhaps. So we've been going through Advent, and this whole series has been called Collision. And so last week we took a break. And actually, real quick, while we're here, kind of parked here for a second, I just want to say one more time thank you to Beth Beeler and Zach Beeler and all of the team and all of the kids that worked so hard on that last week to put it together. Can we give them a hand again, please? And all I can say is if you missed it, You missed it because it was too cute. Have you ever seen that, the little animals, the show? And the narrator talks about all their adventures, and then every now and then he'll go, because they're too cute. I kept waiting for him to do that last week. So Advent, that's what we're talking about. And so last week was sort of our celebration of joy. But quick commercial for next weekend, we're actually going to double back around and we're going to cover joy. So you won't want to miss that. But it's this opportunity for us to slow down in the midst of this busy season. And every year, my wife and I talk about this, every year it seems like it gets busier. And it doesn't matter like where your life is or what you have going on or where you like if you work a full-time job or whatever it is. It just seems like time keeps ramping up and getting faster. And so Advent is this opportunity that we have to just stop for a second, to take the breath, and to join with God's people in celebrating this anticipation of the Messiah that they had longed for, and of course that we had longed for too, but also to look ahead to the rearrival, as it were, of Jesus. And um, it's not just about this ultimate gift that we unwrap every December 25th, you know, like in celebration of Jesus' birthday as we observe that, but it's looking forward to that return once and for all so that he can set everything right and he can make all things new and it's going to be off the hook. It's definitely not something that you want to miss. And so part of the way that we do this, part of the way that we prepare for his arrival, that we get ourselves and really get our world ready is that we actively seek things like peace and hope and joy and love. And we seek those things in Jesus. And all of those words are action words, Believe it or not, we've been talking about that. And so the whole theme has been this collision of two worlds, basically heaven and earth, and bringing those things about. And so it's within these themes and these moments that we have together in our story about Jesus that our worlds and our lives collide. And so one of my favorite things about this season all the time, even dating back to when I was a little kid, is that there are always extra people in our home. For whatever reason, whether it's guests from family or from friends, it just seems like we have more gatherings and there are more people, and that's one of the things that I really, really love, Um, and it was that way growing up too. My mom always had lots of extra folks there, especially people that maybe didn't have celebrations of their own. Uh, One of my least favorite things about this season is that we have these two giant trees in our yard. And these two giant trees uh, just decide every year when they're going to drop their leaves or if they're going to drop them at all. Or they're just going to, you know, maybe they'll just spread them out over a whole season. You know, you can say global warming or whatever. I don't know. All I know is these trees, one of my least favorite things, is that right now our backyard is covered with a three-inch blanket of, tree, of, of leaves, right? And so it's funny because we've had guests in our house, and they look out at our backyard And they see like our yard, of course, is completely covered with this carpet. And then our neighbor across the way, like all of the yards are covered with leaves, probably some of which are from our tree, just to be honest. But there's this one yard that after 12 passes with a riding lawnmower, this guy has – he's created this clear line of demarcation. And you can see his luscious – Dormant green grass, right? Like there. It's like he's basically sticking his claim. If more leaves come in here, they are not mine. They are yours. You need to come and deal with this, right? And so that's one of my least favorite things. And it's such a striking contrast that guests are, wow, look at that out there. It's like, yeah, don't remind me. Those are my leaves. Thank you very much. So imagine you're in your house, okay? And maybe you don't have a backyard. But you're looking out your window into whatever yard space you might have. Or if you're in an apartment, you're looking out onto your deck. And you look there, and all of a sudden you notice that a family is living there. You're like, what? Right? They've set up camp. They put up a tent. They're actually living in your yard, right? And that might freak you out just a little bit, but here's the question. What would you do? I mean, you might call the police, right? There might be all sorts of reactions. I want you to take that idea, that mental image and park it for just a second and we're going to come back to it. Okay. So someone's living in your yard. Take that put it over here for just a minute. In John's gospel, this whole idea of someone moving in is exactly what he talks about when he talks about Jesus coming onto the scene and our worlds colliding with heaven, right? John begins by placing Jesus as the word at the beginning of all things, but he also places him as the source of all things. And we're going to pick it up in John chapter one, starting with verse one, by the way, this is like, this might be Top five, maybe top three all-time passages for me. I love this one. So I want to read it to you, okay? Are you with me? Okay, good. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. I love that. I want to stop here and just contemplate What we just read. What is this really saying? John makes a number of connections, and these connections would have blown the minds of his first century readers. Now, We may be a little removed from that. We've heard a lot of things, and so maybe it's not as dazzling to us. But he's saying some things here that are very important. He's saying that Jesus is the word, that Jesus is actually the Torah. God has revealed through his word. This was the thing that God's people held in highest regard. He's also saying that Christ has always been there with God, that he is an uncreated being, like he's just been. He's always been right there with God. He's eternal. And then he goes on to say, and this is one of my favorite parts, that Jesus is the ultimate agent of creation, right? That with all the things that we know, all of life that's in existence, from the biggest to the smallest, from universes down to below cell level and atomic things, man, he made it all. And he knows how it all works. And it was all made through him and by him. This is John's grand introduction into the story of our Messiah. This is where he starts. And I love it. Last week we talked about this almost cosmological idea, right? I compared it to the things that we might see in movies. You know, movies, we go to them, and someone remarked earlier that it's, we're not dazzled as much as we used to be. Like, the story had better be good because we're not just distracted by all the shiny objects anymore. I mean, yeah, the animation may be really good, but if the story is lame, it's not a good movie, right? It's not going to get ra- good ratings. And let me just say that, the, that not only the graphics in this story are phenomenal, but the story itself I mean, this is the story that every other story is based on, right? Good, triumphing over evil. This is the best. This is awesome. And so you have light overcoming darkness, heaven meeting earth, and then God colliding with man. And so John gives us this glimpse of an eternal Jesus arriving as light in our dark world. And then something incredible happens, and we go to verse 14 for that. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So when John states that the word became flesh, it's important for us to take a minute here and digest the significance of what this would have meant to the people who are hearing it for the first time, because it should mean the same thing to us. When we look back at this earthly ministry of Jesus especially where we are now in history. And I kind of alluded to this earlier. It's like we have all these people. We have theologians and scholars and all these super wise priests and pastors and teachers and people down through the ages for thousands of years that have basically been helping us to create perspective. So when we read these things, they may not be that surprising to us or that dazzling. We're, we, we're not like maybe caught up in awe or wonder in the way that we should be. But in the first century, these statements, guys, would have been huge. Wigs would have, like, risen above ladies' heads in church and spun around when they heard this kind of stuff, okay? They were like, what? What did you just say? Really? This has especially been true to the Jewish people. Again, the Torah is God's word, the most sacred and revered part of their faith. It's God's revelation of himself to humanity. And now all of a sudden our author John is saying that God is going even further by revealing himself in the form of this man who embodies his very word made flesh. Maybe that's just cool to me, but that's pretty cool, okay? But John uses something here, and this is what I want to go back to. It's like he uses this really interesting word picture, this word choice to describe the supernatural act. And the Greek word that's used for dwelt among us is the same word in Greek that would be used when you're saying that you're going to set up a tent. So he dwelt among us or he set up a tent among us, you might say. So this verse is basically saying that God became this human person who set up a tent in our backyard and then moved in. There he is, hanging out in our backyard. Now, the magnitude of the statement may be lost on us, but God's people who have been waiting for thousands of years for Messiah to come, this, this would have gotten their attention. The author, John, he's saying, listen, God, your God, he's not distant. He's not removed. Your God is here and he's involved. So think about it this way. Remember that idea I had you park over here? Pick it back up, okay? The tent in the backyard, you look out there. So you see these people, and if you don't know them, you call the police probably. Or you might go out there and have a chat with them or whatever. But have you ever had someone else live with you in your house? Maybe someone from your family or maybe another family. I know most of you are great people, so you probably have. And let's say you look out in your leaf-covered backyard, and there's this family, and you're like, oh, okay. If it's someone you don't know, you feel threatened, but if it's somebody that you do know, you take them in. And there's a big difference, and you know if you've lived with someone. And if you're married, you've lived with someone, right? So you get it. There's a big difference between knowing someone or knowing of someone and living with someone. Am I right? Yes. I've heard some of your, your stories in the first year of your marriages, and let's just say lots of prayer went into that, and I'm really glad that you, you made it, it's awesome. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Come on, guys, lighten up. Seriously. So living with someone is a whole other thing than just knowing about or knowing someone. So it takes everything to this like extra gear, extra two gears of intimacy than just being friends with somebody. So it's likely like there are good parts of it, right? You'll share meals around your table, which is wonderful and it's awesome. And then there are other parts that maybe aren't so great. Like you're going to share your bathroom with this family too, right? And maybe you only have one bathroom. That's tough. What this really means is that if they really came and they moved into your life and moved into your home, they would be there with you in some way, shape or form at all times. Like they would be there. They'd be hanging out like you might be your normal everyday stuff where you're going to do things your certain way. You have to change the way that you do those things because there they are, right? There's these people right. and, and they're living in your life. Your two worlds would collide Your lives would intertwine. Your life wouldn't just be your life anymore. In fact, it would be your lives together because they would be mixed up and they would be sort of all jumbled together. This is exactly what John wants us to understand about what's going on here. With Jesus showing up, arriving on the scene, he's trying to express when he states that the word became flesh and it moved into our neighborhood. What he wants us to know is like, listen, this is exactly what it's like to live with someone, to have them make their home in your heart and in your life. This is exactly what Jesus did when he collided with our world and he became human. He made his home with us. You may know about someone, like you might read a history book and, oh, I know all about this person's history. I know what age they were when they did this. I know all their goals. I know all their achievements. But if that person made a home with you, you would know a whole lot more than just that stuff. You wouldn't just know about them. You would know them. And I bet they'd know you too. Not the band, you. They might know you too if they're famous. I have no idea. But the point is this, it's a transaction, right? You don't just get to know more about them as individuals, but they get to know more about you as a person as well. And this is exactly what God desired for us, guys, when he sent his son. And he wants that for us. Even today, he wants that for us. God does not want us to merely know about him. He wants us to truly know him. He wants us to know how much he cares about us. He wants us to know how much he loved us. And if you've looked around this world much lately, it's something that we need to be reminded of quite often. And here's the thing about love. We can't talk about Jesus without talking about love. Like, you cannot separate those two things. If someone starts to talk about Jesus to you and love's not involved, they're not talking about the same person that Scripture's talking about, okay? Okay? So let's look at John, actually First John, and we're going to be in chapter 4, verse 9. And he says, in this, the love of God was made manifest. And what that word means is that love was made real, or it was brought to life, or it was uh, brought into reality, or it was made authentic. And so in this, the love of God was made real among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. This, guys, is a cosmic, supernatural event. God's love was made tangible. It was made real for us so that we would not miss it because we'd gotten really good at missing it over time. Jesus is not only the word made flesh, but he's also love made real. And so love moved into our backyard to live with us. He did this so that his life would be intertwined with ours. He didn't want this, right? Two things separated. He wanted this. He didn't want us to just know of him. He wanted us to know him, and he wants to know us so that we would share our lives with him so that we could see him close up and really get to know him for who he is and also so that he could define love for us. And we've talked about this before, but the word love in the English language, it's kind of a mess, okay? It, it's sort of, it's just, you know, I, we, our kids took us through the night to this place, and I loved the tacos there, okay? And then in the next, like, sentence, I might say that I love my wife, but let me tell you, those two things are not the same type of love, okay? And if you're thinking that they are for you, we need to talk after the service, okay? Because that's not how it's supposed to work. So we say, I love tacos, I love television, and I love my mom, or I love my wife, or whatever it is. Those are not the same, and yet we use the same word. In English, the word love primarily is a feeling of something that happens to us. Have you ever thought about that? In English, when we use the word love, it's something that's happening to us. So suffice to say, that is an area of deficiency in the English language. We have one word, love, that can mean any number of things. So we'll put, I love you a lot. (laughs) I love you a lot, right? (laughs) I love you very, very, very much. Like we have to qualify it. We have to try and extend it or we use emojis and then it gets really confusing. But listen. The Bible is completely different, and so the Bible actually has a few words, and because the Bible is written, in case you didn't know, it's actually in some different languages originally. I'm going to point this out to you, and we're going to talk about it for just a second. And so there's a Hebrew word for love, and it's ahava. Say that with me, ahava. And that's more than Jenny calling her child. It's actually a word. It means love. Ahava is the word for love in Hebrew. Jesus also spoke Aramaic, which is a cousin language to Hebrew, and he used the word Rahma for love. I like that one a lot. It almost sounds like it's Klingon and one of you nerds out there's like, "No, that's not in the dictionary, dude." I know Star I know Star Trek really well. That's not a Klingon word. Listen, I don't care, okay? I'm just joking. Aramaic Rahma, say it with me. Rahma. That needs to be a band. Somebody do that, please, okay? And then the last one is in Greek, and that's what most of our New Testament is given to us in. And the early writers who documented the story of Jesus and his disciples, they used this Greek word, agape. Say that with me, agape. And so most of us have heard that word, and we maybe have heard other Greek words for love. But here's why this word, agape, is an important usage of the word love, especially in the New Testament. It's because of this. When love moved into the neighborhood, this was the word that was used. And the love that we collide with is completely different than anything that we know or we've ever known, right? Again, love is something that happens to us. Or love might have sort of a selfish component to it. But the early writers, get this because this is important. The early writers used the teachings and the examples of Jesus to redefine their concept of love in this word agape. For Jesus, love was divine defined In a very specific way. For Jesus, love was defined by seeking the well-being of others regardless of their response. For Jesus, love was defined by seeking the well-being of others regardless of their response. And so Jesus is love redefined. Okay? That's where we're going to start with this. And I'm going to give you just a few examples. I'll throw them up here. You can look them up on your own later on. But we have all these places where Jesus is kind of setting the bar so that we understand what love is. And we start in Luke 6:31, where he gives us the golden rule, which is basically treat others the way that you want them to treat you. He goes on in Mark 12:31 to give us the meaning of life. And someone comes up to Jesus like, hey, Jesus, listen. It's obvious that you know the Torah really well. So I just want to know which out of all the commandments in the Torah is the best one. Which one's the greatest one? Which is the one that if we can't do all of it, which is the one that we need to do that we need to follow? And so Jesus gives this. He basically quotes the Shema when he's talking about what the greatest commandment is. And you'll find the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, 5 if you want to check that out later. But it's basically this. Love God with every fiber of your being. That means everything, like anything that you can do, whether it's money, whether it's time, with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, with all that you have, with every waking moment, love God. That's basically what it's saying. But then he goes on, he actually partners it with another commandment, and he pulls this one from Leviticus 19, 18. And you thought Leviticus was just all sacrifices and stuff. Listen, there's some really, really good stuff there, okay? So here's what he says. He's like, listen, not only do you need to love God with everything, but you need to love your neighbor as yourself. These two things go together. They're peanut butter and jelly, okay? They are a Reese's peanut butter cup. You cannot separate these and have it be the same. They have to be together in order to be delicious, okay? Right? Love God with everything that you got and love your neighbor as yourself. It's our mission statement here. Love God and love one another together. That's what it's all about. If we are doing those two things with everything that we have to the very best of our ability, all the other stuff falls in place. It's not a matter of keeping all these lists of rules and things, because if we're obeying God in this way, those things naturally happen. You're going to want to do the right thing for your neighbor. You're going to want to follow the things that God says because you love him. It's all about love. Real love is seeking the well-being of people other than yourself without risk expecting anything in return. Real love is seeking the well-being of people other than yourself without expecting anything in return. And listen, Jesus is that love made real. Because the big difference here, and we kind of touched on it a minute ago, is that Jesus defines love as action. All of these things we've been talking about, right? Hope, peace. Love, and then next week when we talk about joy. Jesus is making all of these things actionable. He's getting them done, right? He's putting them over here on his action list. This is what I'm going to accomplish today. And he's doing it. He made that love real as action, regardless of the circumstances, no matter what the social status of that person, no matter what the potential for payback is. Real love calls us to action in seeking the best for others. And so Jesus is where God's love collides with us. And what I love about Jesus is he doesn't just talk about this stuff, right? We have lots of people throughout history that talk about all this, oh, do this or be this or go for this or achieve this or uh, aspire to be this thing. But none of those people, none of those men and women in history actually lived that to its fullest extent. Jesus he's like, you know what? Listen, I'm not just going to tell you how to love. I'm not just going to show you how to love. I'm going to demonstrate what love looks like. And so he ultimately ends up giving his life for us to show what love looks like. And he did that guys, even though we are enemies or we were enemies of God. And you might say to yourself, well, Dude, I'm not an enemy of God. Jesus is just all right with me, man. Do we, brothers. I love it. It's awesome. I'm in, dude. It's cool. God's just fine. He does his thing, and I do mine, and everybody's awesome. Well, see, therein lies the problem because that's exactly what makes us his enemies. Uh, Way back, you probably heard the story, but we had two people, when God created them, and they were in the garden. And they decided basically at some point that they were going to choose and establish what was good for themselves, Okay? So God had given them everything, and if you look through all that scripture over and over again, God is declaring the things that are good. He's like, this is good, and this is good, and this is good, and he decided it was good over and over again. It's like this theme. And then there comes this moment where Adam and Eve have a choice, and there's only one rule. Don't eat that. Don't eat that fruit, right? Whatever it was, a pomegranate. I have no idea. But there it was. There's this moment. And they decide that they wanted to decide for themselves what was good and what was not good instead of God. And so as a result of that, that's when sin enters into the world, and now all of a sudden we're born into sin. And that's what makes us enemies of God. And that's also what makes this arrival of Jesus so wonderful. Romans 5.8 says this, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God wanted us to know what real love looks like. Real love reaches out to enemies. I came across this quote this week and I thought it was pretty amazing. The gospel is the only story where the hero dies for the villain. That's your story, guys. That's my story. And that hero is Jesus. Emmanuel, meaning God with us. That means that God's love is with us, right? That Jesus didn't just tell us, but he actually showed us once and for all. And it's a love that reaches out to embrace enemies in the true character of God. And so for us to fully understand as human beings what that love looked like, it took Jesus moving into our backyard for us to get the point, becoming love made real so that we could embrace it And imitate it. Let's take one more look at 1 John 4, 9 together. Oops, there we go. In this, the love of God was made manifest or real among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And John goes on to say that God actually has a purpose in this, that the rescue is part of the purpose, but there's more to it than that. Verses 11 and 12. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. And that word abide simply means to dwell or to be with or to be intertwined with. And so Advent being this season of anticipation, not only for this moment or this December 25th or when we, uh, when we go out to the nativity and, hey, baby, Jesus is back in there, right? woo Like that's exciting, But there's more to it than that. Now we wait for Jesus to return again. But we don't just wait. It's not passive, right? We're not just sitting here. Okay, Jesus. I'll show up because, you know, I'm, uh, this is lame. Like I have all these problems and people are really mean and I don't like to drive because people scare me on the highway and you never know if somebody's going to do something weird. And so just show up, right? It's not just hanging around waiting for that. Some of you talk like that, by the way. I sure wish Jesus would just show up. And don't get me wrong. I think that's great to wish for. But listen, the deal is this. It's like while you're waiting, I've got something for you to do. While you're waiting, you need to carry on what I started. While you're waiting, there are people out there that are hopeless, that are desperate, that are hurting, that are in need. And listen, it's your job to go out there and find them and bring them in. And listen, this isn't a message for pastors. This is a message for everybody. This collision with Jesus is a collision with the love of God. And the purpose is growing his love within us, right, as we abide so that we could share that with others. That's always God's purpose. Discipleship is always God's purpose. And that's just kind of a fancy word for basically teaching other people the way that Jesus lived. And helping them to do it. Time and time again. God gave revelation and instruction. To teach his people. Teaching us how to reconnect with him. But we always ended up. In the same self-destructive cycle. And that's part of the reason. Why you don't like to read the Old Testament. God the creator of the universe. Desired that relationship. And that intimacy. That he had with people at the beginning. We have no idea how long Adam and Eve had it parked there in the garden before they finally sinned, right? We're not given necessarily any indication. It could have been for years. We don't know. But what we do know is that God helped them, and he was there with them, and he was among them, and he planted a garden for them. And he was there like, oh, that's a really cool name, Llama. I like that one, Adam. That's awesome. High five. That was for you, Amanda, by the way, Llama. The creator of the universe, he wanted that intimacy that he'd had in the beginning. And so the word was made human and moved into the neighborhood to live with us. And after teaching us what that true love looked like, Jesus gave the ultimate example of that by giving up his life for our sin so that we could one day live with him and the father eternally. Sin made us God's enemies. And here's the thing. There wasn't anything we could do to solve that problem. And we tried for years and years. And maybe you've tried for years and years. But here's the thing. God did what we could not do to fix what was broken. And that's not only what we have to look forward to when one day he will fix everything, but that's what it took for us to truly understand what God's love looks like and, frankly, what our love should look like. That we would help someone, that we would give whatever we needed to, To show love to someone else. So, as disciples of Jesus, our Savior, the Messiah, He challenges us, guys, to empty ourselves and to surrender to Him. That's where we find that love. Would you guys bow your hearts with me? I want to take a minute and just ask you a few questions to consider. So, the first question is this Do you know of Jesus? Maybe you've heard things about him. Maybe you've heard good things about him. Maybe you've heard bad things about him. Maybe someone in your past talked a lot about Jesus, but love wasn't a part of that conversation. I'm here to tell you today that, again, Jesus is the definition of love. So do you know Jesus? Do you know of him, or do you really know him? If you want to know him in that intimate way and have your life be intertwined with his today can be that day that you meet him for the first time. So the challenge is basically to surrender your life to him. Will you ask him to come and dwell in you? And it's really easy. All it takes is acknowledging and confessing the sin of your enemy status and asking him to forgive you. And in that moment. We are instantly made friends with God. And that's when He moves into our lives and helps to direct our thoughts. And He walks with us. So, if that's you today, that doesn't have to be fancy. That's something you can do right where you're sitting, and it's just a simple prayer. But maybe you're here today, and you've said that prayer, you've made that friendship. So my question for you is, does God's love abide or live with you? Is his love making a difference in your life? Is God changing your perspective on how you love and treat others? Not just the people that are easy to love in your life. What about the people you disagree with? How about the people who can't do anything for you in return? Does your life demonstrate the enemy-abracing love of Jesus? And for those of us in this room who are Christians or followers of Jesus, John was one of the disciples who walked with Jesus. And in this passage, he teaches us that when God's love abides in us, lives in us, it dwells in us, that the only way we can perfect it is through practice. So how do you practice the love of Jesus? What is God moving you to practice? How is he moving you to practice his love today? I think God wants us to reconstruct our busy schedule so that we can spend more time with him because he wants us to share our time with others for his good. I believe that God calls each of us to share the skills and talents that he's given us to help others, and everybody can do something. And I also believe that God calls each of us to sacrifice in order to meet the needs of others. Jesus said that real love is seeking the well-being of people other than yourself without expecting anything in return. And so, final question for you today is, where can you bring about a love collision in your life? God, we humbly submit ourselves to you today and and realize that as humans, we are limited in our capacity. And we are so grateful that you not only sent your son, but you sent him to redefine love as we knew it, God. And that he wasn't content just to talk about it or maybe give a couple of examples or tell a few stories, but he lived it out and gave up his own life so that we would understand it. God, we are selfish people and we need you to flood our hearts. We need you to abide within us. We need you to make your home in us. We need to see this world with your eyes and have the compassion and the mercy and the grace that only you can give us through your spirit. So God, I just pray that you would develop that in us. Whether it's someone that's making a choice to be your friend today for the very first time or maybe the longtime friends in this room that just need to be reminded that you've given us a job to do. So God, we just ask that You would help us. We need you. I pray that we would start to notice, God, ways in our own lives, people that others ignore or miss that need to know your love. Help us to be people that aren't afraid to radically alter our calendars. Help us to be people that boldly step forward and just take that first step into serving you in some way that you've gifted us to do. Help us to be people like that early church, God, that gave wherever it was needed because there were people that didn't have things. We pray that you'd redefine love in our lives for each one of us. We ask all these things in your name. Amen. I'm